Welcome to another episode of the WBT. I'm your host, Adrian Bonnenberger, and tonight I'm joined by Brian Kastner and Wes Morgan. Brian's a journalist and the author of four books, All the Ways We Kill and Die, The Long Walk, Disappointment River, and coming soon, Stampede, Gold Fever, and Disaster in the Klondike. He and I co-edited The Road Ahead, an anthology of original veteran authored fiction. Wesley's a journalist, and his debut books due out early 2021, The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley. Both journalists and writers are incredibly smart and great thinkers, so I thought I'd waste some of their time reading and discussing a creative nonfiction book called Zinky Boys by Svetlana Alexievich a book about the experiences of survivors of the USSR's war in Afghanistan. I understand, Brian, that you'd like to talk about the introduction first. Sure, yes. Well, what struck me, um, or what was a great surprise, which I didn't realize was coming, is the intro to this book was, uh, was written by Larry Heineman, who, of course, is, is a great writer that we lost just about a year ago now. And not only was he a tremendous writer, Paco story, close quarters, um, won awards, but more importantly, a tremendous human being who was a great supporter of post 9-11 veteran writers, great supporter of mine, but not, not just me, was a uh, you know, uh, supporter of, of many writers of our generation. Uh, and I still miss him. Uh, I miss him greatly. It's not like we talked a lot, but when we did talk, it was always insightful. And I mean, this forward or this introduction to this book is vintage Larry Heineman. It sounds like him. It is his voice. It's all about the jive. It's all about the class struggle. For him, I think, I mean, we'll talk about this more in a second, but for him, the parallels between the U.S. experience in Vietnam and the Russian experience in Afghanistan was really a class-based thing in that, you know, he got drafted and always hated the army and every veterans day would say, don't thank me, fuck the army. They drafted me and made me kill people. And I got drafted because I didn't have another choice. And he sees the Russian experience in Afghanistan as the same kind of thing. The people who ended up in Afghanistan were soldiers who didn't have another choice. And so I think that, yeah, Larry's introduction is both a great frame uh, and also just a great piece of writing to to have Larry around again, something I didn't realize was out there. So greatly appreciated that. And that is maybe a good way for us to get started because this book was, I think for a long time, this book was seen as a, uh, was explaining uh, the parallels between Russia's involvement in Afghanistan and the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. But of course now, and we're three writers who write and think about Afghanistan, and have been to Afghanistan, it really was a preview of the U.S. experience in Afghanistan, right? So it's it's got the double parallel on each side. Yeah, that jumped out to me too, reading, uh, the, the first time I read this was, I was in Ukraine, and it was given to me by somebody working with the Red Cross, and I'd never even heard of Svetlana Alexievich, because I'm a, a, a very narrowly read <laughs> person and people are always astonished at the things that I haven't read. Uh, and then I too am astonished and embarrassed <laughs> at the things that I've never read. But I read this and was, was really carried away by it. It's an incredibly powerful piece of writing. And I think that was before I'd encountered Larry Heineman through our work on The Road Ahead, Brian. The introduction is you read it and you realize that, that 
that must have been the beginning of that idea, or at least part of that idea of the USSR's experience in Afghanistan being analogous to the American experience in Vietnam. And boy, the book just has that written all over it. I don't know if it was deliberately done, but the book that first jumped out to me as a sister book or cousin book was uh, Dispatches by Michael Hare. I don't know if anybody else got got hints of that. Uh, I, I did, for sure. The little disjointed anecdotes um, without trying to have an, a central narrative or anything like that. Um, it definitely reminded me of Dispatches. But it was interesting. I, I mean, so I had never read this book before. This was the first first reading of it for me. Um, although I think I'd read an excerpt or two here and there. But despite the framing of the introduction that's specifically about Vietnam and the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, after a little ways in, I kind of, the Vietnam stuff stopped noticing it so much and was really just thinking about the comparisons between, especially the differences between the Soviet and American experiences in Afghanistan. Would you care to say any more about the differences? I mean, I've got a list of of differences in my head that, that I felt were substantial based on my experiences of the place, but what were some of the ones that jumped out to you? Sure. I mean, there were both parallels um, and, and differences that definitely jumped out. I mean, often it was, um, you know, very distinct little parallels that I would notice. I'd say, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting to see this similarity. But broadly, I mean, just the, and I don't, I don't know how much of this is, you know, the way that she selected the interview subjects or what it is exactly, but just the sheer, um, I mean, just the savageness that's described and the scale of what sounds like war crimes, basically. That certainly jibes with one of the things that I saw over there that was and I'd been prepared to see it because you knew that the Russians and the USSR had done these terrible things. Really, we should say that the Soviets, I guess, would be the best word to use because these people are coming from all over. They're Belarusians, they're Ukrainians, they're Russians. But you know, there were a couple of villages that were ghost villages still that had been wiped out. And when we asked people what had happened to them, they said the Russians. Um, you know, they came through and destroyed everything. Uh, and that's something that's not something that we did. In Afghanistan, we never just flattened a village, um, and and they different subjects talk about that at length. They talk about doing that in reprisal for losing somebody. Uh, another thing that really jumped out at me was how much transaction there was in it. Like this was uh, this weird like capitalist experience for a lot of them. So they they have money and they have goods and they can sell the goods for money. So everybody turns into an entrepreneur. Many of the women turn to prostitution. Many of the men like sell every piece of equipment they lay hands on for money so they can bring a Japanese cassette recorder back with them to Russia. It almost seemed extraordinary to me. And I, I at a certain point, I felt like I was, I was being put on or something. Like, there's no way it was just that, right? I don't know. There are some... Um some parallels to Vietnam in that, that there's plenty of Vietnam movies that would make you think that people just drank coffee in Saigon um, all the time, right? And uh, obviously force protection was not a concept for the Soviets in the 1980s. I, I don't know, like when it, when it comes to those parallels, I yeah, I mean, there's definitely like a surface level, uh, names are the same, the uh, attitudes a lot of the attitudes seem to be the same, Adrian. I think you make a good point about how the capitalism that's turned on its head. I think it would be easy to fall into a, the place has always been at war. This was just one more war. The U.S. was destined for more war because obviously, you know, in between the Soviets and 9-11, there was a decade of warlords fighting Mujahideen warlords fighting each other right so the Afghan experience is actually continuous from you know from this book through 
our books, I guess. It's like uh, it was continuous conflict. I don't know that on the one hand, I think that's factually true. And on the other hand, it feels a little uh, trite to put it that way or or reductive or something that I don't want to reduce the entire Afghan experience to a succession of of fighters just going through the same villages over and over and how is there anything left to blow up and how are there any people left to kill if all of the things that are being reported are true. Something that um, stood out to me just thinking about the way I've heard Afghans describe both the Soviet and American experiences and, you know, older Afghans talking about Soviets and Americans they dealt with is that, you know, you do sometimes hear, you'll hear American troops telling stories about oh, you know, the Afghans in this village told us the Russians used to do the same thing or the Russians said the same thing to us, all that kind of thing. Um, but I also often would get kind of a disclaimer when interviewing um, older Afghans about their experiences with Soviet and American troops, where um, sort of before launching into criticizing U.S. actions in, in their province, they would say, look, I, I'm not anti-American. When the Soviets were here, they literally massacred people all the time, you know, and they pointed, described, Kunaris would always describe this, the Kerala massacre, um, which happened actually before the main Soviet involvement, but with this complicity of Soviet military advisors, um, and say, look, I, you know, the Americans weren't like that, but, and then kind of launch into the litany of problems that they had with the American presence and American policies over the years. But yeah, it's just interesting to me that uh, I, I've often heard them described by, by Afghans um, who lived through both as both problematic, but very substantially different things from their experiences. That's really interesting. I, I keep wanting to talk about, I, I, and I want us to tackle some of the, the writing choices that Alexievich makes, both from the perspective, uh, our perspective as writers, but also as journalists to a certain extent. It really is extraordinary how the, the book feels consistent as a message. Anyway, she talks in the, in the very beginning about how she has an idea of what she wants this to be, and she's going to write it that way. And the book is her version of the war. And it's it, she's in conversation with somebody, uh, a, a, a person who's called her up on the phone, who's yelling at her because he doesn't want her to tell this. He doesn't want her to write this book. He thinks that it's bad that she's she's written it or and she's going to publish it or she has published it. He's like, this is our war. This is our story. And then she's like, well, is it like, is it your story? <laughs> and, then, and then she goes about like telling all of these stories that are consistent. And I, I didn't notice it the first time I read it, but this time through, I was like, wow, you know, these, these stories are all so, so very much a part of a whole. Each one is, is a fresh new horror and they're powerfully written. I don't want to take anything away from her as a writer. Like some of these stories I remembered very vividly from the first time that I read it too. Like the, the story of the single mother whose only son is this like giant guy who's six five. And of course, you know, spoiler alert, he's killed. Uh, every mother in the story suffers some devastating, heartbreaking loss. And this was her, the son was her everything. She was a single mother and this was the love of her life. Her son was clearly the love of her life and he's gone. So I, I don't mean to diminish Alexievich's writing ability at all, but like Michael Hare with Dispatches, I, find my, I found myself simultaneously carried away and also feeling like, am I being manipulated here? Well, so there's two sides here. So I, there's, we could talk about the content of the book and like the parallels of, you know, 
the American campaign and the Soviet campaign and and what she's actually reporting. And actually, I find that much more challenging because like you say, it all feels part of a whole. One story turns into another story. The, actually, the details for me mostly just kind of bleed into one general thing. I think that her voice, her creative decisions, um, whether any of this is true or not, like like the the piece of art as art is actually the much more compelling or I don't know it's like a juggernaut of a book when it comes to that and the details kind of fall away for me I guess I would say to address your Michael Hare dispatches question directly I did not get that sense only because she doesn't insert herself except in these occasional intros and outros I mean the, just briefly the book is divided into three sections. Those sections seem completely arbitrary. I could not find a rhyme or reason of what story ended up in what, what place. There's no narrative arc from beginning to end. It kind of is in all places at all times in the war, uh, like, like you say, just kind of this gelatinous cube of a thing. She doesn't insert herself like Michael Hare does, except perhaps she's actually inserting herself on every single page in the mouth of every one of her subjects all the time, in which case it's it's actually, it's not that she's never there, it's that she's always there perpetually. It seemed clear, um, I, I likewise couldn't figure, couldn't understand anything about the structure about why certain stories were in part one versus part two or part three, but it seemed like in some cases it was the same interviews sliced up into different pieces. I mean, you could, you could recognize details, like there's a soldier with a dog and the dog is named and he, and he appears in both you know, part one and part two. I was, yeah, I was sort of trying to think what the rhyme or reason was, why, sh why she'd spliced them up in the way that she had, and if she was trying to juxtapose kind of certain stories with each other, but I really just couldn't, um, I couldn't think of anything. I mean, I don't think we're just dumb and missing it. I mean, my experience of reading this book was two or three stories a night for several weeks. I couldn't read more than a couple pages at a time. It was absolutely relentless, and... And eventually you realize after how many, a dozen, two dozen or whatever, no, every single story is going to be like this. Every one of them is going to, is going to be wrenching. The American um, obvious comparison to me is not actually Michael Herod Studs Terkel, but the reason that that's not, it's both the obvious and the incorrect comparison because it is supposedly oral histories of all these people that she's interviewed, but Studs Terkel has the tapes and you know that it's actually those people saying those things. And I'm not sure that any one of her subjects actually said any of these things. People, people don't talk like this. They don't talk in extended metaphors and incredible injury, uh, you know, imagery and rip your guts out every other second. I, so I don't think people talk like this, but I think they, Maybe we think like this, like in our in our best the the inner monologue of our best selves sounds like this sometimes. Yes, if she is, um, what what's the thing about like making a, a sculpture is that you know that the sculpture is like hidden inside the block of marble, and all the sculpture does is remove the pieces that don't need to be there. I suppose as she's doing these interviews, people are kind of vomiting out. The blocks of marble and she's doing the carving and this perfect story for each person is like it's in there somewhere uh, but it does take her to make it.
two things that stood out to me in just in reading what is in there and what's not and thinking about, does this sound like the way people talk? I mean, just as someone who spent thousands of hours interviewing American military veterans about their experiences in a war is one, there's just such a persistent theme of them talking to her about the legitimacy of her work and of her, of her telling their stories, which is really not something that I, that often comes up with people who've agreed to talk to me about their experiences. So I just, I found that sort of interesting. And then and just sort of the anger that was associated with that. And then two, there's almost no humor. Periodically, there's like a joke, almost like a knock-knock joke kind of joke. But other than that, it's just, it's just completely bleak and without even the kind of bleak humor that I associate with being a huge part of soldiers telling their stories to me anyway. So that definitely stood out. It's almost pure untrammeled rage. And it's when it's not rage, it's grief. I think that's what makes it so difficult to read, in part because it's very effectively portrayed. You're just in somebody's miasma of grief or rage, one of the two. Uh, and occasionally you get somebody who's like sort of given up all hope of everything and they're lost in despair. You know, that's, like, that's what you get. That's the sort of variety. I found that quote I was talking about earlier where Alexievich is, is talking about how she sees her role as the writer of this book. I quote, my calling as a writer involves me in talking to many people and examining many documents. Nothing is more fantastic than reality. I want to evoke a world not bound by the laws of ordinary verisimilitude, but fashioned in my own image. My aim is to describe feelings about the war rather than the war itself. And that's what she wrote. That, that, that seems a little bit outside of the bounds of, of journalism. And I, I do wonder if in talking to these people, you know, that was what she led with. Just, you know, here's a standard disclaimer for the journalists. Uh, uh, I'm going to read you this passage that I wrote about the book, just so you know. This is kind of more of a me story than a you story. I mean, it's interesting you say that, because I, mean, I, I think also um, I was reading just about her today as someone who wasn't super familiar with her. And I guess after she um, was awarded the Nobel Prize, people would say, oh, she was the first journalist awarded this for, for literature, but that she contends that she is not a journalist, at least, or sometimes has contended that. She's not a journalist. The only question is whether this is still nonfiction. And, and I think that there is a very, there's definitely an, an American-European cultural difference there of what is allowed in fiction and what's allowed in nonfiction. And uh, the lines are much brighter and the taxonomy is much clearer here than it is in other parts of the world. And I respect that. But I, I did, as I often, often as I read this, I thought, could I have gotten this past my editor, not in a newspaper or a magazine, but even my book editor? And what would I have to do to get it past my book editor? What literary journal would take this? What creative nonfiction disclaimers would, would have to go at the beginning or end of the essay um, for this to count as nonfiction in an American context? I, I don't know. That's To me, that, re that remains an open question. It's great art. Um, but is it, is it nonfiction is, I don't know, <laughs> um, or, or is it a memoir? Is it, um, is it as much a nonfiction as any memoir is, is it, is it a channeling of, uh, Alexievich's anger at the war through her subjects? Uh, th this was a way in which it reminded me of dispatches also. I mean, because similar questions kind of hang over dispatches, obviously too. I mean, how much of this is just fabricated to uh, to present the feel that he was trying to go for. I think it's important because 
as we said earlier, a lot of attention and importance has been assigned to this narrative by the West, this idea that Afghanistan was the USSR's Vietnam, and also that its failure in Afghanistan was part of the USSR's credibility collapse, along with the economic trouble that they were encountering in the 1980s, and along with Chernobyl. My sense growing up before, you know, I, I started reading foreign affairs and foreign policy was essentially that Russia had collapsed after they lost in Afghanistan and Chernobyl blew up, blew up. Like that's that's the kind of like dumb guy. If you've heard of Russia and the USSR and you know about its collapse explanation for how things happened causally. And this feels this this book, which I understand was published in 91, I think during the collapse of the USSR must have, if not played an active role, been part of that zeitgeist, you know, that moment of people saying it's not worth it to stay in this organization. You know, this, this collection, uh, this group of nations is so corrupt and, and so useless. And it is in these pages. I and mean, you read this and you think to yourself, how could an organization like this, like they, they, they've got the medics have glass jars for plasma, like they have to import plastic um, things for plasma for blood. But, but the things that they're issued are these sort of, you know, red army excess pistol, night pistols from 1944. How could an organization like that do anything? It's totally beyond. I want to say a word, though, about the boldness with which she does it, though. So she, like you say that she's publishing this in, in 1990, well, early 1990s. She's writing in, in the late 80s. This is being published at the same time as Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. And I, I think there's two things I want to say about that. One is I get the feeling like as a writer about war and a lot of the feelings that she's talking about, the challenges of coming home, the what did I do while I was over there? How did the war change me? Uh, why does the country not understand what I did? Um, just a lot of the feelings of post 9-11 veterans coming home. You know, you get the sense in both this book and the things they carried if more people had read that as they were returning home, they would actually have the answer to a lot of their questions. Like the, the feelings that you feel are new, well, they're new to you, but they're not new feelings. They're feelings that have been well explored in literature. This idea of going to war and coming back and, and how you feel about it. But I th also think it's an interesting contrast between this book and the things they carried, because I know we're not supposed to criticize Tim O'Brien, but you know, he writes the the story, How to Tell a True War Story, and there's a certain self-consciousness there. There's a certain amount of hand-wringing. How am I possibly going to communicate all of these terrible things to this audience? And there is none of that self-consciousness or hand-wringing with Alexievich. She just, like, writes the war story, like, out of the gate, you know, the guy who's blown up and the wet slap of the bullets and like uh, post-traumatic, all the stuff. Like she encapsulates everything in the opening story and then she does it again. And then she does it again. And then she does it. I mean, how many of these vignettes are there? 40, 50, 60, something. I'm probably miscounting. She just, there is no self-consciousness about 
just like one bit of war truth after another. Maybe she fashioned it in her own image, but you have to ad admire um, that she's able to do it and really get to the heart of the matter. I'm really glad that you brought that up, the things they carried, which is being read in high schools today by high school students. I don't know if Zinky Boys is being read in, in Russian high schools, I suspect not. But the, the contrast between the two, you're right, is remarkable. And Vietnam, I think the two authors are coming at the, the experience from very different uh, vectors. Firstly, Tim O'Brien is coming at Vietnam from the perspective of a participant, but Vietnam was a well-covered conflict. Svetlana Alexievich, of course, is coming at uh, Zinke Boys from the perspective of a nonfiction writer let's say, I mean, that's fair to say, but the, the conflict itself has been, and she travels there as a journalist, I think. She does say that she's traveled there as a journalist um, in 1986, but the, the war itself is not being covered. So the relationship that her readership has to her story is going to be extremely different from the relationship that Tim O'Brien's readership has to his story. And yeah, I do wonder to what extent the comparison of Vietnam and Afghanistan is a bit of a contrivance in many ways. Maybe it's comparable only in terms of its having been a failure for the respective countries, but the ways that the countries or, or nations heard about it and understood it and experienced it must have been very, very different. Um, and so maybe, maybe the, the rage and grief and despair that we read in a lot of these stories and all of these stories Maybe that explains it a little bit better than, than having to do with war because it's, it's, it's about more than war. It's also about anger at the USSR. It's also anger about an unaccountable bureaucracy that's, that continues to do these sort of silly and arbitrary things in a dumb way and get people killed. It, it, it does seem that many of these stories, not all of them, but many of the stories are about that much more than they are even about the war. But this is how Zinke Boys is a preview more than a retrospective comparison to Vietnam as well, I think, in that there is, you know, the post 9-11 wars, uh, WMDs, the government lied to us. There is much more of a sense of losing faith in institutions where now it goes without saying that in American life, conspiracy theories are mainstream. That part does feel like the end of the Soviet Union where uh, nobody believed the government and always, people were always sure that there was something else secretly going on. I mean, that's the part that I guess resonated to me today is that there is, despite our best efforts, uh, Wes's in particular, US involvement in Afghanistan remains a rather underreported war. And there's a big tenure of, of the American experience has been that there's something going on, quote, over there that people back here don't really understand and the government's not telling you the truth about. In increasingly that latter part. That reminds me of, there's one point toward the end of the book. I mean, you know, there's a theme throughout the book talking about all the secrecy that surrounded the war and how nobody knew anything. But there's one um, vignette later in the book where someone essentially says the opposite and says, look, it's, I, I know that there was all this secrecy, but it's not, not like we didn't know about it. You know, we saw the coffins coming home. We did know about it. And I sort of took it to mean we knew about it, but we weren't asking questions. Um, and that reminded me a little bit of um, the way in which Afghanistan is, you know, it may, it may be an undercovered war. I mean, certainly compared to, say, how it used to be or how Iraq was at the height. 
but it's also there is always coverage of the Afghan war there for people who are interested in it. It's just a matter of how important does it feel. The the question I had for the two of you, only because I noticed it in myself going through another time, was whether there were any stories that particularly jumped out at you or grabbed you as being meaningful. If there were stories that you found yourself discussing with friends or girlfriends, spouse, family members. Mine, for example, was the, the one that really jumped out to me was that that single mother who had perhaps even an inappropriate relationship with her son. Uh, like her son would bring her flowers and buy her candies and we're like, that's at one point her son is like, why don't you get remarried? And she's like, I don't have time in my life for a husband and for you. And the son sort of laughs and like, but then he dies and it's just so, you know, and you know, you know, after like, she's a mother, she's presented in the story as a mother in bold. And as soon as you see, you know, the first line, single mom, I only had one kid. You're like, God, this is going to be brutal. And it is. And she loses them. And it's just uh, for, for whatever reason, that was the one that really stuck with me. Well, I guess two things stuck with me, and it um, it wasn't the mother's stories. I put these stories in three categories. There's the soldier stories, the mother's stories, and then the other women who go and take civil service jobs with the Soviets there, whether they're nurses or workers in other professions or they're in the stores or whatever the case may be, and how everyone basically assumes that they're really there to be prostitutes, or at least the men treat them like that as soon as they arrive. So I, I think if there are parallels, not that there wasn't plenty of sex with Americans in the American experience in Afghanistan, but having an entire group of people of Americans going to work in, I don't think that there is an exact parallel um, to that experience. Um, I don't know, you can tell me if I'm wrong. But then I guess the other thing that jumped out at me or a story that, well, didn't stick with me because it wasn't there, is that no fathers are interviewed or no fathers are the subjects. It's always the mother of the soldier. As a father of military age boys, that is something I was hoping to hear. I was hoping to hear about the father who lost a son, a father who lost a daughter, to hear that reflected back. I know that that's not Alexievich's thing. You know, she, the unwomanly face of war uh, that she wrote, like she tends to interview women. That's fine. I did just notice though at a certain point that um, I was hoping she, it was going to be in there and it wasn't. On your point about kind of the army of, civilian and often female workers who, who were there during the Soviet experience. I think, yeah, in some ways it's it's without parallel. It's almost as though the Peace Corps had been 10 times larger than it was and had made Afghanistan its main effort at the same time that the U.S. military was there. Um, but then again, you know, as I was reading through it, I also started thinking more and more just about the legions of contractors who lived on bases like Bagram, not necessarily American contractors, but third country national contractors, contractors from all over the place who kind of had this other existence on, at least on the large bases. And it, that also made me think of, you know, one of the themes that seemed to run through all of the stories, which I think ties to Adrian's point about it being sort of her reflection of how, of how she saw society or wanted people to, to see society, is there's just this extreme scarcity always. I mean, everybody's always just practically digging in the ground for anything, um, whether it's, you know, plasma or ammunition, or it's almost hard to swallow how 
how ill-equipped and ill-supplied everything seems to be. Whereas, you know, with exceptions like, you know, lack of armor in 2003 and 2004 in Iraq, often it seems like a theme of the American experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan has been excess, just the opposite. Profligate wasting of material and money rather than this kind of like, you know, shoestring operation that's being described here um, almost in, in this extremely severe fashion. Yes, the quarterly emails I get from the inspector generals would tell me that there's not a shortage of night vision goggles. There's too many, and they've all ended up in the Taliban's hands, uh, for instance. What you say about the contractors is interesting, both in that there's, as far as I can tell, not really contractors in the Soviet experience. I, I mean, I guess that, that makes sense just from how the Soviet Union was built and capitalism and everything else. I mean, it's an obvious statement, except when you start to try to figure out, well, who was doing what? And yeah, so to have U.S. government employees, I, I, yeah, I don't think it, it fills quite exactly the same roles. And having all the third country nationals from other places uh, was the contractor experience and the female Soviet uh, experience. I do think that there is a definite difference there. There's certainly a difference in scale, just the sheer number of them. I mean, I, I read a history of the Soviet experience in Afghanistan a few years ago that got into this, just the sheer number of basically civil service employees, young young civilian government workers who wound up there, and it blew me away. I mean, I just had, I had no idea. At the same time, the U.S. built the largest, our largest embassy in the world in Baghdad, right? So, like, there are places, obviously, where there's plenty of American civil servants. It's just... I mean, there's so many experiences in the American war, I guess it's which part of it you're talking about, in what year, in what place, yeah. um, which which is a not an original observation, but doesn't keep it from being true. I also couldn't help thinking with the narrative about uh, this being kind of a Soviet Vietnam and also this being tied up with the collapse of the Soviet Union and just with the sheer kind of chaos and brutality that's, that's depicted in this version of the Soviet experience. Um, it, got, it definitely reminded me of... Um, the way I hear Afghans talk about the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, and to some, to some extent, the way I hear Americans who spared it a thought, I mean, you know, American soldiers who have some impression of what the Soviets did in Afghanistan, it often kind of mirrors that. Um, but it's not a lot like what I've heard from the relatively, the small number of Soviet veterans um, of Afghanistan that I've actually talked to about their experiences myself, who sort of would, I think, would, would take issue with, uh, with this kind of chaotic um, just massacres all the time kind of uh, depiction of the war. Just so I understand that, uh, Wes, you're saying that they would would say that Afghanistan is, is was, their experience of Afghanistan was different from the experience that's uh, described here or the same? Different. I mean, in the small number of the small number of Soviet veterans that I've talked to, again, these are all guys from a specific part of the country. Um, they're self-selecting in that they're uh, often were junior officers and they're choosing to talk to me despite the, you know, the language barriers and everything. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've sort of tried to understand what happened in the, North, the part of Northeastern Afghanistan that I focus on from the American's perspective. I've tried to sort of understand what happened there from the Soviet perspective. It's pretty hard to do. I mean, there's not a lot of, there's not a whole lot of English language information out there. But I, I think what happened was quite different from the narrative that, you know, Americans get from Afghans when they're walking around these valleys, which kind of is to the tune of, Soviets came in here with armored divisions. We slaughtered them. They massacred people. They we bloodied their noses. They left. It was the Soviet Union fell. I think uh, you know. I think the Soviet military, for all its bluntness and no, no matter how severe the kind of constraints that it was operating under were, it, it was an it was an adapting organism in Afghanistan. 
And in some ways, it adapted more effectively than the U.S. military did. Would you care to elaborate on that? Because I'd love to hear it. Sure, if you're interested. I mean, it's like I, I, um, I, I don't want to get too far into the kind of like away from the book, but it's, but it's an interesting thing to me. I mean, I, you know, we have this impression of the Soviets as they, they're this lumbering armored beast that was just like, you know, elephants walking through, walking through valleys practically. But uh, in Kunar anyway, which is the, you know, the area that my book is about and that I put some effort into looking into, the Soviet experience, I, I see the American experience there as essentially one of becoming gradually more and more up armored and less and less mobile um, as time goes on and as the American military becomes more purposeless and relatedly more casualty averse to a point where, you know, it's driving around in MRAPs that are actually heavier pound for pound than the armored personnel carriers the Soviets were driving around in. Whereas the Soviet experience in Kunar was the opposite. They, they came in in those BTR personnel carriers that you still see lying around the countryside. Um, but by, you know, by the mid 80s, I mean, they had become a very flexible air mobile force that was um, bouncing around places in, in the hills in Kunar that only, only elite American special operations forces went very occasionally. They were in fact going quite routinely uh, and on kind of like long Vietnam style, you know, multi-day patrols up in the mountains, just kind of doing things that the U.S. military never really did in Afghanistan. And that's very, that's very, that's definitely contrary to what the image of the Soviet experience in Afghanistan that most American veterans have, whether it's from reading books like The Bear Went Over the Mountain, or whether it's from, you know, talking to this or that district chief in, that, in Afghanistan, who, who recounts, you know, his feats against the Soviets. So I'm curious then whether there is a lost cause narrative among some Soviet veterans, not to bring out the Vietnam parallel again, but there's definitely a subset of Vietnam veterans who said, hey, we were finally figuring it out by the early 70s. If we had just done more B-52 linebacker campaigns, you know, bomb the North, we really could have done it, right? I don't think that there is a similar lost cause narrative for the American experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, except among the highest generals who just want to kind of perpetually keep us there. So I don't know. I'm curious of your thoughts. Continuously surprised by findings, you know, the occasional special operations NCO who has, has a lost cause narrative on Afghanistan. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it surprises me when it happens, but it's real. Whether, as for whether there's sort of a Soviet lost cause narrative, I don't know. I mean, it's with the small number of Soviet veterans that I've talked to, I sort of tried to keep the conversations in pretty neutral territory, talking about the tactics of their experience in Kunar. Sometimes because, you know, I had found them via Twitter and it was clear that they were um, rabidly uh, anti-American and a Putin supporter. I didn't want to stray from the common ground that we had, but it, it wouldn't surprise me. My experience would suggest that there isn't, but for an odd reason, which is hinted at in the book, but um, is corroborated by per my personal experience of Afghansi in Ukraine. And I did make an effort to spend time with Ukrainian veterans, uh, Red Army veterans of Afghanistan with varying degrees of success, at least from a journalistic perspective. But I think what happened with them in the book, they say that the Afghansi played a role in protecting the fledgling democracy from the coups of 1991, the attempted uh, overthrow, and that Gorbachev and Yeltsin had sort of awarded some of these Afghansi who had sort of showed up for the new government uh, with medals or recognized that they had participated. And I know for a fact that there was a, a, pretty, a pretty heavy contingent of Afghansi in um, both the Euromaidan, Euromaidan protests 
and in Ukraine's war against Russia in the East, and, and still is. There are still Afghansi serving out there. And that very much redeemed the Afghansi in the Ukrainians' eyes because they had taken part in this, this failed USSR project, which was doubly damned as far as the Ukrainians were concerned because the Ukrainian, many Ukrainians really always had a kind of antipathy toward Moscow and the USSR and felt that they were part of the country, the part of the union begrudgingly. And so to take part in a USSR action was somewhat questionable. There were people who did so happily, willingly, proudly, but it was also always with some type of caveat there because they lost family in the 30s uh, or the 40s. And so I think there, the, the, the thing that helped guard the Ukrainian Afghansi and possibly some Russian Afghansi or maybe all of them, or maybe the Afghansi writ large, was the extent to which they played in their country's democratic revolutions in 1991, uh, 1990 and 1991, and since that time. So the, the lost cause narrative for them, the, their experience of Afghanistan, which was, as far as I can tell from the book and in general from the people that I talked to, almost universally negative. It's seen as a, like, they don't want to go back there. <laughs> many, many American service members valorize their experience or glamorize it or see it through the haze of nostalgia. And they think, wouldn't it be great if we could get the guys back together for one more go, uh, one more patrol? This is not a widely held idea on the part of, of Afghansi. But I think part of that is because they've sort of already, all of them have sort of redeemed themselves in one way, shape, or form through subsequent activities. So the suffering seems like it's been justified, ultimately. Whereas, of course, in Vietnam, and that was what was so interesting to me when I was seeing the Ukrainian Afghansi taking part in Euromaidan, you know, these guys, gray-haired ponytails and these sort of like, that's like the Vietnam veteran fantasy is being able to save the White House. And then everyone's like, oh, the Vietnam guys, they weren't so bad. They're, they're the good guys after all. My last question for both of you is, how much do you think this book and um, Alexievich's experience is, uh, or how much of the view of the book, I should say, is based upon her being Belarusian and born in Ukraine as opposed to being Russian. And whether, if we've said that this, that this book is really a, a channeling of her anger, how much of it is also being, in some ways, the outsider? And I, don't, I, I think that's an interesting question that I'm not qualified to answer. Um, just not being a, a student of Russian literature or um, recent history the right way. But I'm curious for both of your thoughts on that. I, I'm certainly not prepared to answer that at all. I don't know the first thing about it. <laughs> I don't have a good answer. I, I'm, I'm not qualified to answer it either. <laughs> Sorry. But I would Adrian, say- You are the most qualified to answer it, Adrian. I'm sure of that. Well, I think we're all qualified in the sense that she- She's born in Ukraine. She lives in Belarus. She's a provocateur. The story that she tells, she undermines from the get-go in a certain sense by claiming it as her own. And then it's, it's about everybody but her. She says, she says, I'm not gonna name these people because some of them ask me not to and that would be a violation of their trust and others, I, I cannot you know, show their story to them in a mirror as it were, and I won't do that. But here are the people that I interviewed. And then she lists a long block of people by name and by position. So anybody could do the math and sort of like track down the characters and figure out who she'd talk to and who was who in the story. It's, it's there if you want it. I think she's 
somebody that is perpetually an outsider. And if she were in America right now and she were in her 30s, she'd be writing for The Intercept probably. And this is just kind of, you know, the, the, the perspective that she has. She's the type of person who is not satisfied with the things as they are because the things as they are are always upsetting and imperfect. And she happened to be, uh, she happens to be an extraordinary writer. I, I would love to write a, a single story as well as she wrote one of those vignettes, you know, just one. Um, it, and she's also, she was born in, in a truly extraordinary time in human history where she was. So she was also, to your point in our pre-conversation about books, Brian, timing was everything. And at, at least as far as this book and the Chernobyl book, which she also wrote, uh, which, which is very similar to this one. If, if you haven't had a chance to read it, it's just a, a catalog of, of sorrow um, and, and the government messing up. She's right. You know, the government messed up just as bad as it can, as it could have. And that's one of the reasons it didn't survive. I talked with a, a veteran of the KGB, uh, a longtime veteran of the KGB on the uh, 100th anniversary of the October revolution. It was a centennial. So I didn't talk to him in October of 2017. I talked to him in 2017. And he said, and I said, why did the USSR fall? I was there for a long time. <laughs> it was, it beat Nazi Germany. Like the, the, the things that you would have expected to make the USSR fall didn't make it fall. It, it made it, you know, more unified. He said that, he said Chernobyl was a, a big part of it. The sort of like the lack of trust that was building up among the people against the government was one thing. And the other thing that he said was that there was no representation. He said, like, if you saw something that was broken, there was no way to communicate that to anybody to ever get it fixed. So the feeling of not being listened to. And I do think that with our, you know, with our country looking at Afghanistan, will Afghanistan break America? Probably not. A lot of people want the troops to come home. A lot more don't care because the troops to them probably feel like they've been there since the 1980s in some way, shape or form, you know, with the CIA aiding the Mujahideen. Like we've been in Afghanistan, Rambo was in Afghanistan for God's sake, you know, with how, how American is that? You know, Rambo was blowing up things in Afghanistan. It feels like a fait accompli, but maybe that's the type of thing where if, if a couple more things go wrong in America, people will, will start to feel like they're not being listened to. That's my question to the both of you how prescient do you think this book is, not on a, a detailed level, but on, again, on a sort of zeitgeist, like cultural level? I find it very difficult to imagine that the United States falls apart as a result of its relatively small scale, long involvement in Afghanistan. But what if the United States fell apart coincidentally, right at the same time that the Afghan war was winding down? I mean, how, how easy is it to tie up to, how easy is it to separate out the collapse of the Soviet Union from what happened in Afghanistan? How much of that is kind of an external narrative? If you look at Al-Qaeda's written materials about its goals and plans, often it's, it describes wanting um, Afghanistan to be the end of the American empire in the way that it was the end of the Soviet empire. So that's a narrative that suits them well, um, regardless of you know, the amount of truth to it in either case. Color me suspicious. I'm on record um, for saying that I think uh, history will look back at this time and say that uh, terrorism and threat of jihadism, etc., cetera, uh, was really just a big distraction. And it's minimizing to think that my service was in essentially the equivalent of the Boer War, but I think that's what we all did. But unfortunately, that means the Great War is coming. 
So I'm always reminded of what Tom Ricks put at the end of, I think his first Iraq book, which, or maybe the second, I forget which one, where he said the events for which Iraq will be known haven't happened yet. Uh, and he wrote that before ISIS. Uh, I think the same thing is generally true for Iraq and Afghanistan are going to be some like ran in a hundred years, there'll be a random footnote detour. Hey, by the way, uh, do you, do you remember that uh, the Russo-Japanese war and the Boer war and all these other things happened before the great war? I think that that's the period that we're in. Uh, having said that, Wes is right. If sometimes if, if there is, you know, just out of a sense of coincidence or something, if it may be that a few years from now, something happens that we see that Afghanistan was a great predictor, but I don't think so. There's both the direct effects of the wars, which I think are relatively small on American society, but I think there are also much broader indirect effects, like the role that not even, not even the actual people who served in Afghanistan, not even the influx of veterans into police departments, which I think is relatively small and not that different from previous decades and after previous wars, I, I think there have been kind of larger cultural effects of these wars too that are that are harder to measure and may, may have broader impacts on our society than the than the wars themselves in some ways. I mean, like you, I think the, their biggest impact may be the degree to which they were distracting us from other things for a important, an important period of time. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. It was a real pleasure to get your thoughts on this book. I recommend Zinky Boys to anybody who's got a stern stomach and really just wants to thrash themselves with, with some hard stories because it's, it's ex exceptionally well-written um, and it gives you a, a great snapshot of the feelings of rage and depression that were powerfully animating near the end of the USSR. Thank you, always good to be back in the WBT. Yeah, thanks Adrian, it was good to be here for the first time. Um, if I could also just leave you with one more one more thought that may just be of interest to you and uh, not not necessarily in the scope of the podcast. Um, but you mentioned that, you know, in talking to Afghansi, you don't encounter nostalgia um, about about the war in Afghanistan. You know, I think it's um, one way that Afghanistan seems so different from Iraq to me is the degree to which it's this kind of like fragmented, fractured war and that everybody's war is extremely different. Um, you know, I, I have never talked to, I don't want to say never, but very rarely have I talked to Helmand or Kandahar veterans who have nostalgia for the place or for the people there. Um, but I've talked to a lot of Kunar veterans who do. Um, and similarly, I actually encountered several Afghansi um, who, who kind of, I, I encountered them because they run kind of nostalgia sites and nostalgia forums um, dedicated to their unit or their FOB. Um, from their time in Afghanistan, where they post photos that seem, you know, almost indistinguishable from the ones you'd see in a uh, on an on a you know American Facebook forum about the Korangal Valley, uh, guys and guys who sort of remain very attached to it, uh, to their service, and 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 very nostalgic about it. I don't know whether they were ten or twenty or thirty years ago, um, but who seem to be now. I have a character in All the Ways We Kill and Die who told me that she wants to buy a cabin in Nangarhar, right? <laughs> so like this is there's something. I mean, it's the mountains. Yeah, um, it's the mountains. You hear people. You hear people say this about Kunar and Aristan Nangarhar. There's a. I, I I know a guy who told me. I don't know whether this is true or not, but he told me that he had made that joke during a uh, during a you know TS security clearance interview when asked about if he owned property in any foreign country. He said no, but I you know I hope to someday in the you know the Karun Valley of Nuristan. <laughs> you get the joke immediately, and it was a whole intense moment. Yeah, you got to be careful with the <laughs> who you're who you're telling that. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for joining me.